Al-Bayan Radio presents the following lesson from Masjid Al-Azhar, Bilmo. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. Rabbi shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa ahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli. Welcome back brothers to the second fortnight, which is the second lesson obviously in respect to our Seerah series. Uh, studying the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Last lesson, brothers, we mentioned or we left off mentioning the points about the importance of studying uh, the seerah. And I wanted to stress that as we begin our studies of the life of the greatest man to walk on the face of this earth, that studying the seerah is even more important for the students of knowledge, for people who are taking studying seriously and the like. It's even more important for you uh, to study the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, obviously, these lessons, as we mentioned last fortnight, they're not meant to be detailed, in-depth, uh, advanced lessons and the likes, no. They're meant to be basic to intermediate lessons, getting a general glimpse of the life of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and those around him. But for the student of knowledge, it's vital that you study the life and the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, apart from the many reasons we mentioned last lesson, also because in his life we learn the manhaj, we learn what to begin with, what to end with, what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and the likes. And also, brothers, we remember us sitting here today, that this is from the greatest acts of worship, to come and to seek knowledge, and especially seeking knowledge about the greatest, once again, man to walk the face of the earth. Now, before we go into the beginning of the Prophet ﷺ's life, we want to understand a general overview of what he was sent to, who he was sent to, where he was sent. So we want to understand life before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that is what this lesson, inshallah, a shorter lesson than last fortnight. That's what this lesson will be dedicated to. So how was the state of the Arabs before the sending of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? How was the state of the Arabian Peninsula uh, before the sending of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? What used to occur there and the likes? So to summarize it in a few words, for those who don't know, the Arabian Peninsula, Peninsula was very bad, in a very, very bad state. And then the Prophet Muhammad wasallam was sent, and obviously things began to change and change drastically and change heavily. But before the sending of the Prophet wasallam, things were extremely, extremely bad, not in just respect to their beliefs, but also in respect to their character, also in respect to their morals, in respect to the way they dealt with others in pretty much every single aspect as we're going to see today some of that. The sins they used to commit were great and grand. You know, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says, Stay away from the seven uh, dangerous and destructive sins. The seven sins that doom an individual. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was asked, And what are they or what are these sins? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he begins with the greatest of them all, and he says, ashirku billah, to associate and ascribe partners with Allah azza wa jal. And then he moves on to the next one, and he says, magic, as-sihr. And for all those who were not here on Wednesday night, when we gave that short little talk and lesson, we said magic, just in case you did not know, is obviously one of the nullifiers of Islam, just like associating partners with Allah, is one of the nullifiers of Islam. The one that delves into and practices and engages in this filthy and disgusting action of magic, then he is a disbeliever in Allah Azza wa Jal, even if he claims to be a Muslim. And I only say that and repeat that 
especially for our younger brothers and the teenagers and the likes, especially, who may have not يعني, heard these kind of things uh, before. So the Prophet وسلم, he says, the first, ashirku billah, to associate partners with Allah, that is the most dangerous and destructive sin there is on the face of this earth. And then after that, he says, magic. And then after that, qatlu nafsillati haram Allah illa bilhaq, and killing the soul which Allah Azza wa Jal has forbidden, except with due right. وَأَقْلُ مَالِ الْيَتِيمِ And to devour the wealth of the orphan. وَأَقْلُ riba And dealing and delving into interest. Which wallahi that alone needs a big big series. Not just an hour or two. A series in our day and age. For many, many of our brothers and sisters. And we could very well fall into this uh, category. Are delving and dealing with riba, with usury. What they know today as interest. Without us even knowing about it. May Allah forgive us. And also, وَالتَّوَلِّ يَوْمَ الزَّحَفِ Running away from the battlefield. وَقَذْفُ الْمُحْصَنَاتِ الْمُؤْمِنَاتِ الْغَافِلَاتِ And to accuse the chaste, believing women who don't even think about anything touching their chastity. And once again, I'll mention, just for those especially younger brothers who may not have heard it before, this is one sin which many, many do not speak about. Many, many do not discuss. To accuse a sister of zina, when there is no proofs and no witnesses, is one of the most grand of sins. The Prophet wasallam, out of all the sins, he said, stay away from the seven destructive sins. Is there more? Of course there's more. But he's explaining to us and emphasizing how great these sins are. And it's sad to constantly see, especially online and the likes, people accusing one another of zina and sleeping around and one, two, three and calling each other by names and the likes. If there was a Islamic government established here, straight away you would need to bring your witnesses for that claim. Straight away you'd need to bring the witnesses for that claim. So a brother accusing a sister of engaging in these actions and likewise the opposite is also true. A sister claiming that a brother engaged in this action of zina and slept around and the likes, and also a brother accusing another brother and a sister accusing another sister, they also all fall into this. So to accuse the chaste, believing women, likewise the men are also included in this, who don't even think about, that's how innocent they are, they don't even think about anything touching their chastity, is one of the most major of sins. Now why did I mention this hadith? Why did I say this narration? What does this narration have to do with what I was mentioning? The narration, my brothers, of the seven destructive sins, each and every sin was committed and not just committed before the sending of the Prophet ﷺ, but it was looked at as normal. It was looked at as normal. There wasn't a problem with it. But today, alhamdulillah, after Islam came, and Rasulullah came and Allah sent down the Quran and taught us that which we did not know. If someone was to do one of these actions, it is looked at as not normal. Obviously in our day and age, يعني, the West and living in the West and the likes, we've been trained and raised to think it is normal. But in reality, all of them are against the norm and against Islamic teachings and customs and practices. But pre-sending of the Prophet وسلم, all of these sins were committed. So the people before Islam, they were in a state of complete darkness. In a state of complete darkness. And then Allah Azza wa Jal, He sent Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to take them out of darkness and into the light by the will of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. 
Shirk was widespread amongst the ummah and prominent in all of its forms. People used to prostrate to idols, which wallahi brothers, idols that they would create with their own hands. And then after creating them and finishing them, they would go and worship them. And they would go and prostrate to them. And they would go and slaughter to them. And they would go and fight for them. And if anybody was to come near them and their idol, it would be war. It would be an all-out war. This was the mentality. I'll build an idol and I'll make an idol and then I'll worship it after. But the idols were not the only things that were worshipped. And the idols were not the only things that were prostrated to. These people, they would prostrate to sticks, to stones, to whatever they could, of trees and the likes. Anything they could prostrate to and worship would be worshipped. So much so that they used to call out to the angels supposedly. And the saints who were saints in their eyes, they would call out to men, they would call out to other than Allah Azza wa Jal so much so that they would go and worship the jinn and shayateen. Allah Azza wa Jal, he says, وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ رِجَالٌ مِّنَ الْجِنِّ يَعُوذُونَ بِرِجَالٍ مِّنَ الْإِنسِ وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ إِنسِ يَعُوذُونَ بِرِجَالٍ مِّنَ الْجِنِّ فَزَادُوهُمْ رَهَقًا Allah Azza wa Jal, he says, and indeed, verily, there were men amongst mankind. They used to seek refuge in the jinn, the men from the jinn kind. But the jinn would only increase them in sin and disbelief. So the men from mankind, they would go and seek protection, seek safety and the likes from the men amongst the, the jinn. So what would they do, for example, when they would go traveling? They would enter and come across valleys. And when they would enter that valley, they would say, A'udhu bi Azizi, and in another narration, A'udhu bi Sayyidi, and in another narration, A'udhu bi Udhama'i hadha al-Wadi. The I seek refuge. And as we know as Muslims, we are only allowed to seek refuge in Allah. But they would say, I seek refuge in the heads, the chief, the chiefs, the leader, the leaders, the masters of this valley. From what? From the evil of that which is within the valley. So they would go and they would put their trust in these shayateen, in these jinn kind and the likes, and they would worship them. And they would worship them. And look at an interesting narration which paints, which paints a picture of what we just mentioned. Abu Raja'in al-Utaridi, he was a tabi'i. This individual, Abu Raja'in al-Utaridi, he was a tabi'i. Before that, let us take a step back, brothers. What is a companion? Who knows what a companion is? When you say a companion, brothers, we don't want just someone who was with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Why? Because so were the hypocrites. The hypocrites were also with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and likewise the disbelievers and the likes. So we don't just want to say a friend of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the likes. So who is classified or what is a companion? Who wants to answer, brothers? I know personally that there's at least two or three brothers here that can answer this question from previous studies and the like. So, uh, Fadbal. Very good. Salam. Very good. Do you want to get a chair and come sit here as well? Are you sure? Jazakallah <laughs> khaira. Very good. Brothers, a companion, just a bit, you know, knowledge based as well. A companion is man laqiya nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this definition is given by Ibn Hajar in his text, Nukhbatul Fikr. 
that someone who met the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, mu'minan bihi wa mata ala al-Islam, whilst believing in him, meaning at the time of him, this companion, this person, sorry, meeting the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he believed in him and he died on Islam, and he died on Islam. So this individual Abu Raja, he was not a companion. But he lived at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he believed in the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he died on Islam. So why is he not a companion? Why is he not a companion? He lived at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and he believed in him, and he died on Islam. Where? Uh? Very good. He didn't meet the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam. And some of the muhaddithun, they said, whoever saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But others came and said, the better wording would be, whoever met. Why? Because there were some blind companions. There were some blind companions who never saw Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but they indeed met him. So Abu Raja, even though he was alive at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he believed in him and he died on Islam because he never met him, he was not classified as a Sahabi. But there's a name that the Muhaddithun give to these individuals. Does anybody know? Some of the ulama, they counted these individuals as 20 names. As 20 uh, uh, names, 20 uh, uh, of these individuals who were alive and they didn't meet but they believed and they died on Islam. So who can give me the name of these individuals? Now that one, the first question was a bit basic. That one's, uh, uh, that one's a bit more intermediate to advanced. Okay, these individuals were named as, known as Al-Mukhadramun. A Mukhadram is someone who was alive at the Prophet ﷺ's time and believed in him, but did not die on Islam. So the point is anyway, moving on, what does he say? What does he say? He says, explaining brothers as an example from their time, as an example of... How Arabia was and what the Arabs' mentalities were and the likes, he says, الأحجار, We used to worship the stones. We used to worship the stones. That when we found a better stone than the first one, that we used to worship the stones. When we found a better stone than the first one we were worshipping, what used to happen? We threw away the stone we were worshipping and we took the better stone. Yani look at the mentality. We're talking, imagine brothers now, someone's making sujood to a brick. And then he's making sujood and worshipping the brick. And then he goes and he finds an even better brick. So he throws the first one that he prostrated and worshipped and then he starts worshipping this brick. And then when he finds a better one than this one, he starts worshipping the next brick and the likes and the likes. So clearly here, yani, you can just understand how it was and how shirk was prominent and widespread back then. But then he says, فَإِذَا لَمْ نَجِدْ جَمَعْنَا جُثْوَةً مِنْ تراب. Now what about if they couldn't find the stones and the likes yani, to worship and to take as their deities and gods? What would they do? He says, we used to gather some soil, some earth. Then what? If that wasn't enough, ثُمَّ جِئْنَا بِالشَّاتْ فَحَلَبْنَاهُ عَلَيْهِ Then we would get a sheep. Brothers, wallahi, yani. <laughs> When you think about this, look at, look at the state of these individuals back then. So, they used to, if they couldn't find the stones, they would go, they would get some soil, some earth. Then they would get a sheep to stand on top of the soil, 
and they would milk the sheep on the soil. On the earth, they would milk the sheep on top of the earth that they just gathered, and then they would do tawaf around it. And then they would do tawaf around it. So look, subhanAllah, at the mentality. Anything, anything that they could find and make, they would worship it. That's why Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions that Al-Qurtubi mentioned, إِنَّ أَهْلَ الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ الْأَصْنَامَ مِنْ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى إِنَّ بَعْضَهُمْ عَمِلَ صَنَمَهُ مِنْ عَجْوَةِ أي مِنْ تَمْر ثُمَّ جَاعَ فَأَكَلَهُ He says that the people of Jahiliyyah, which are the people before the sending of the Prophet wasallam, and once again, this is an introduction to starting the life of the Prophet wasallam next fortnight, inshaAllah, so we can just see, look at the state of the people that he was going to. Yani when you think, brothers, why didn't all these kafar of Quraysh, these heads, these chiefs, why didn't they answer the call? Why didn't they accept the da'wah? Look at their upbringing. Look what they went through for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of life. Subhanallah, their mentality. Look how it was shaped and molded. So, Al-Qurtubi, he says, Indeed, the people of Al-Jahiliyyah, they used to make idols out of anything. Even some of them, they would make idols out of dates. You know, the dates brothers were in Ramadan. Uh, every morning, seven Ajwa dates protects you from magic and the likes and poison and that. They would get a date and they would make that their God. They would make the date their God. Then what would happen? Imagine worshipping a date, brothers, standing in front of a date and someone's worshipping after a few hours. What happens? Huh? You get hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry now. So what do they do? They worship their God. Then, yalla, khalas, I'm very hungry now. Let me just put it in my mouth and eat it as well. Uh, this is the mentality. So this is what they used to do, subhanAllah. Some of them, obviously, not all of them. Yani, imagine now, brothers, uh, especially the Arabs, yani, getting some wara'anib on the you know, stove, and then you finish the wara'anib, you have a nice dinner, and then you say, you know, sorry, you worship it, worship it, worship it, then you have a nice dinner with it after. Even logically, that's not accepted. Even logically, how could you worship something that could possibly even be eating? How can you worship something that cannot even help itself? let alone help others. How? Yani, logically, it doesn't even make sense and doesn't enter. As for that which, just on a side note, as for that which has been attributed to Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu by the enemies of Islam, you know, obviously there's some that attribute themselves to Islam, but they curse Abu Bakr and they curse Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu and the likes. What they love to say is that this individual that done this was Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And there is absolutely no proof whatsoever that it was. But we say to them, even if it was Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And let's say it was, and he repented, he still became one of the greatest giants and mountains to ever walk on the face of the earth. He's still the individual that when he would go into one path, when he would tread a path, shaitan would go the complete opposite way. As Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he taught us. And inshallah we'll touch up on that a bit later on. And another one he said, مَا نَفَعَ أَحَدًا صَنَمُهُ مِثْلَ مَا نَفَعَنِي No one's idol benefited them the way it benefited me. My idol, the way it benefited me. So some of those around him, they asked him, and how is that? How did your idol benefit you? He says, صَنَعْتُهُ مِنَ الْحَيْسِ أَوْ مِنَ الْحِيسِ فَجَاءَ الْقَحَطِ 
I made that from like a sort of barley with some dates and the likes. Anyway, a type of food. I made my idol from a type of food and then a famine came. And a famine obviously like a food shortage now. There's no food anymore. So what he says, then I began to eat day by day. Eat a little bit, eat a little bit. So see brothers the mentality. They would worship things that they would make with their own hands and things that were not made by their own hands but were... You know, were, were, were creations like the trees we said, the rocks, etc., etc., etc. But these individuals talking about the food ones, they would say, We made it, we worshipped it, but then we ate it after for whatever the reason was. And the last example of this, a last example of this is one of them also speaking, reminiscing about the times of Jahiliyyah, the times before becoming Muslims and the sending of the Prophet. وسلم, he says, That I had an idol pretty much. Now he says, I saw two foxes. I saw two foxes. And these two foxes, they climbed to the head of the idol. They climbed to the head of the idol and the two foxes urinated on the idol. They done a number one on the idol. So he says, فَقُلْتُ I said يعني, to myself, أَرَبٌ يَبُولُ الثَّعْلَبَانِ بِرَأْسِ يعني, A God? A Lord is you know, using your brain now. Using your logic now. A God. How can it be a God and foxes urinated on its head? So he says, then I went to the Prophet wasallam, and I pretty much became a Muslim. So as you can see, the people were in a state of misguidance. And apart from the disbelief, apart from the shirk and association of partners with Allah Azza wa Jal in so many different ways, in so many different ways, another way or another problem was their belief in omens. Their belief in omens that unfortunately so many Muslims today, they also have. What did they used to do as an example? They used to get the birds, birds. And when they would want to make a decision, a heavy decision, they would go outside and they would let the birds go in the air. If the birds went one way, they would say, this is good. We're going to go ahead with our decision. Imagine, brothers, now you want to go on a fishing trip with the boys yani, after Fajr. So what do you do before, just right at Fajr time or something like that? You go get five to ten birds. You go outside and you let the birds go. And you tell yourself, if the birds go right, that's a good sign. We're going to go. And if the birds go left, a'udhu billah. That's bad. That's a bad sign. Something might happen to us. So they cancelled the whole trip. And this was what the omens, or part of the omens they used to believe in. And the belief in omens doesn't stop there. And inshallah on the 17th of January, I begin my schedule at Auburn on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And Thursday nights we'll be explaining inshallah Kitab al-Tawheed. And we'll be explaining all of these things in much more detail inshallah but i'll just give you an example of an interesting one i hadn't heard before before this brother mentioned it to me it was the omen regarding an owl and he said that when he was growing up with his family they used to be very very heavy on superstitions you know some people if you walk on the crack in the footpath you know we had these things growing up if you walk on the crack on the footpath it's bad luck huh? if you walk under a ladder it's bad luck if you do this it's bad luck so his mother Raised him believing, if we see an owl on the tree, it means someone's going to die. That, that was the belief, subhanAllah. The brother was telling me this. If his mum was very heavy on it, that, yani, on it I mean, on yani, this belief in superstitions. So he says that if you, she saw an owl in the tree, uh, then it was game over. 
this owl is getting off the tree no matter what because <laughs> of this belief. So he said to me, she would make me go out with a broom. And even if I had to take a few steps to get the owl, I had to get the owl off the tree. These are the superstitions, subhanAllah. And back in the times of Jahiliyyah, uh, the ummah was filled with them. The ummah was filled with them. And subhanAllah, brothers, wallahi, the one that lives with these superstitions, just in case anyone is going through these right now, you will never have a life of ease. You'll never have a life of rest. You'll never have a life of comfort. Because everything you see and everything you hear, you're always going to be confused or on the lookout, watching out, paranoid, one, two, three. Like if you see, for example, a black dog or a black cat enter into a street, some people, they actually believe, like from the bottom of their heart, they actually believe that this is bad luck. You're not, don't enter that street. And if you enter that street, that's it, something's happening to you. This shouldn't be the way we think as Muslims. And there was also many other sins being committed, such as the killing of the infants. As Allah Azza wa Jal, He tells us, وَإِذَا الْمَوْؤُودَةُ سُئِلَتْ بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلَتْ And when the young infant girl, I want you to imagine this, especially the fathers who have daughters and the likes, when the young infant girl, a baby girl, a baby girl, helpless, a baby girl getting buried alive, subhanAllah. Allah tells us when this girl would be asked on the day of resurrection, what sin were you killed for? Why were you killed? And in another qira'ah, and this is not one of the mutawatir qira'at, وَإِذَا الْمَوْؤُودَةُ سَأَلَتْ بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلْتُ And when the, this young infant girl who was buried alive, she will be the one asking, why was I killed on the day of resurrection? She would be the one asking, why was I killed? And doesn't this happen today? Doesn't this happen today? Think about it really. We have that same thing in another way. What's that way? Abortion. That is abortion. The World Health Organization in the statistics this week, statistics were released and they said, in 2022, over 70 million abortions happened worldwide. Over 70 million abortions induced as well. Induced means under the eye of the medical practitioners and the likes. 70 million. Then what about our sisters and the women of this ummah? And the brothers and the men of this ummah who want this, call to this, try to do this with all of their hearts. What about those who do it and it's not even under the eye of the practitioner. It's not induced. Like what I heard before of a sister taking, I think it was five or six tablets of Panadol, hoping she would get an abortion like that. And another, eating types of foods, hoping that she would lose the baby like that. Is this not haram? Does this not fall under as many ulama? They said killing a soul unjustly, especially, especially after the soul has been breathed in. So subhanAllah brothers, this, if you really think about it, is very, very similar to what they used to do. The difference is that what they used to do, the infant would be there. The infant would be there and buried. But what these people, they do is similar. Of course, not the exact same. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, look what he says. Allah Azza wa Jal, he says, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ مِنْ إِمْلَاقِ نَحْنُ نَرْزُقُكُمْ وَإِيَّاهُمْ And do not kill your children because of poverty. I want you to really focus on this word, my brothers. Do not kill your children because of poverty. Then Allah Azza wa Jal, he says, provide for them or we will provide for you and for them. Pay attention to this word. Don't kill your children out of poverty. We will provide for them and for you. Or this one, 
who will provide for you and for them. In the other verse in Surah Al-Isra, Allah Azza wa Jal mentions almost the exact same verse with a bit of a difference. He says, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ خَشْيَةَ إِمْلَاقٍ نَحْنُ نَرْزُقُهُمْ وَإِيَّاكُمْ he says, and do not, now listen, pay attention, and do not kill your children out of fear of poverty. Out of fear of poverty. We will provide for them and for you. Look at the difference now. Allah Azza wa Jal in the first one, in Surah, Ali, in Surah Al-An'am, he says, don't kill your children out of poverty. We will provide for them or we will provide for you and for them. And in the second verse, don't kill your children out of fear of poverty. We will provide for them and for you. What's the difference? The ulama, they said, look how Allah Azza wa Jal in the first verse, he mentions due to poverty. Yani don't kill your kids because you are poor. And likewise, we say to our brothers and our sisters today, don't kill your kids. Don't have abortions because you got no wealth. Because you got no money, because you're scared, I can't afford to raise my child. This is haram. This is not allowed. And this is actually having bad manners with Allah Azza wa Jal. The one who thinks good of Allah Azza wa Jal will understand and know and completely believe that it is Allah Azza wa Jal that is providing for this child. It is Allah Azza wa Jal that is sustaining this child. And they would not think, how am I going to provide? How? They would put their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the first verse, Allah azza wa jal, he says, and do not kill your children out of poverty. Meaning Allah is addressing these individuals that are already poor. They're already poor. Allah says, he will provide for you and for them. Meaning through this child, you're scared. You're scared you won't be able to provide. Allah is telling you that through this child, inshaAllah ta'ala, he will provide for you. You will become richer, inshaAllah. You will have more barakah in your life, inshallah, and he will provide for them. So don't worry. And this is the belief today. What's the ruling they say, for example, on people using contraceptive methods? What's the ruling on people using contraception? Now here, there's a bit more detail to this actual answer, but the agreement is in that if someone uses contraception because he's scared that his wife might fall pregnant, or she's scared that she might fall pregnant and they don't want that because if she was to fall pregnant, they're worried and they're scared that they won't be able to support, then you are not allowed. Then you are not allowed. But if it's for another legitimate or a legitimate Islamic reason, then yes, inshallah ta'ala, even though once again, there is some more specific details regarding that. But in the second verse, Allah Azza wa Jal, he says, وَلَا تَقْتُلُوا أَوْلَادَكُمْ خَشْيَةَ إِمْلَاقٍ now who is he addressing? The first verse Allah addressed those who are already poor. But in the second verse Allah Azza wa Jal, He is addressing those who are rich. But they don't want the children because they fear poverty. They fear that if I have kids, my money is going to go down. If I have kids, I'm not going to be able to make more money and things like this. Allah Azza wa Jal is reassuring them. Do not kill your kids out of this belief. And Allah will provide for them and for you. Allah is showing us that He is the ultimate provider. He is the ultimate sustainer. But these individuals at the times of Jahiliyyah, they did not think like this. And that is what caused them a lot of the times to kill and bury uh, the children and especially the female infants. And the other belief is that they were worried that this girl might grow up 
and she might bring shame to the family amongst other uh, beliefs. And subhanAllah brothers, that reassures us that who is the one that provides? Who is the one that sustains? Who is the one that gives? Wallahi, as we've mentioned many times, everything you have aslan, it's all from Allah Azza wa Jal. And we look at subhanAllah life in general, we see who is the one that provides for the fetus in the womb of the mother? It's Allah. Who is the one that sends down the rain? It's Allah. Who is the one that causes the plants to grow from a small, minute seed? It's Allah. Who is the one that placed the mountain so firm and so strong? It's Allah Azza wa Jal. And this is why one of the poets he says, وَإِذَا يَنْفُثُ سُمَّهُ فَاسْأَلُهُ مَنْ ذَا بِالسُّمُومِ حَشَاكَ And if you see a snake or the snake spitting out its poison, then ask it, who is the one that filled you with poison? Obviously the answer is Allah. But he doesn't stop there. He says, وَاسْأَلْهُ كَيْفَ تَعِيشُ يَا ثُعْبَانُ أَوْ تَحْيَا وَهَذَا السُّمُّ يَمْلَأُ فَاكَ And then ask, how do you live, O snake? How do you live when the poison is filling your mouth? Yani look, subhanAllah, subhanAllah, who, or Allah Azza wa Jal, how he created the snake. And other obviously poisonous insects and vermins and the likes. And he put this poison in the snake and these vermins that if this poison touches other than the snake or other than this poisonous animal, that individual thing is dead. But this thing, the snake or the vermin is filled with this poison. But subhanAllah, nothing happens to that at all. That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And today we see some of these mentalities as we said. Everything we've mentioned, brothers, we see some of these mentalities. Yes, we're talking about jahiliyyah, but today in our day and age, if you really were to apply this or compare this with our day and age, with the life that we're living today and our ummah, you see that there are a lot of similarities, a lot of comparisons between that time and this time. And on the topic of killing unjustly, the amount of stories amongst the Arabs before the sending of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and how would they, how they would kill each other unjustly, unlawfully, are plenty. And do you think it's over something meaningful? Do you think the killings and the war is over something meaningful? Many times it's over something very minute, very small. You know, like today in our day and age, on a lesser scale, not war. But a brother looks at another brother for just a split second extra and the brother wants to go to war with his brother. The brother wants to go to war with his brother. And it happens and we see it. Or over, for example, five or ten dollars, one brother wants to make a scene out of that and they go to war over that. But the wars of Jahiliyyah was not just a life for a life, for example, when it came to death, no. They had the mentality that if you take, took a life of ours, we'll take your whole army's life by the will of Allah. That's how they had the mentality. You kill one of ours, we're taking all of your army. It's not one for one, it's one for 100. And this was the mentality of the Arabs back then. And this was the mentality of the inhabitants of Arabia back then. And the wars would stem from the silliest of things, as I said. Something so small. Like if it was an accident, they would go to war with each other for 40 or 50 years. And not just them... Not just, for example, families or other than families. Not just they would go to war with them, but their offspring would go to war with their offspring. And their offspring would go to war with their offspring. And over what? As we said. Over what? The very silliest of things. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and we're almost done inshallah brothers, he explains the situation during the time of Jahiliyyah. He says when he directed this towards the leader of Ethiopia, when he migrated, he says, we were a people of ignorance. This was after he became Muslim, of course. 
He's explaining now. He's showing us how they were back then. He says we were a people of ignorance. We worshipped idols. We were eating dead meat. We were committing abominations. We were severing the ties of kinship and family relations. We were treating the neighbors badly. And the strong amongst us devoured the weak. And of course that is in riba. Our interest in usury and other than that. These are just some of the things they did. But when Allah Azza wa Jal sent this great man, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, everything changed. Everything changed. And that is inshallah what we're going to see in the following fortnights. In the following fortnights. So the point is killing was widespread. And the killing as I said for, would be for whatever reason. And look at us today. Do you not see some people dying because of getting shot? Because of getting stabbed. And you were to ask why but there has to be a reason. And they say Allahu A'lam. There was no reason. They got shot. They got killed. They got stabbed. They got drugged. They got whatever it was. And there was no reason for it. And this is one of the signs of the hour. As the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he says, وَالَّذِي نَفْسِي بِيَدِهِ وَلَا أَوْ لَا تَذْهَبُ الدُّنْيَا حَتَّى يَأْتِيَ عَلَى النَّاسِ يَوْمٌ لَا يَدْرِ الْقَاتِلُ فيما قتل ولا يدري المقبول ولا المقبول فيما قتل that by the one in whose hand my soul is the world will not come to an end until a day would come to the people on which the murderer the killer the one that killed the other one he doesn't even know why he killed him he doesn't even know why he killed him and the one that was killed and died he doesn't know why he was killed this is what the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam told us. And are we not in these days today? Are we not in these days today? We see it with our very own eyes. And the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he says, لا تقوم الساعة حتى يقتل الرجل جاره وأخاه وأباه. That the hour will not be established until a man he kills his neighbor and he kills his son and he kills his or he kills his brother and he kills his father. And subhanAllah, once again, we look at the news and the likes, you see this. It's rampant. You see on the news, a man, he killed his whole family. And for what? Nothing. For no reason. And they're all dead like that, subhanAllah. And on top of the killing, some other sins, the dealings in riba, where the strong would devour and eat unlawfully the wealth of the poor. And as we know with riba, brothers, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And the communities are destroyed and separated and the likes. Also, oppression towards the slaves was widespread. Alcohol and intoxication was the norm back then. Astrology was practiced. Divination, sorcery and magic and the likes. And one of the greatest points, and we'll end with this inshallah ta'ala. One of the greatest points which many of the non-believers, the kafar, they try their utmost best to hide, to cover to reject, to turn a blind eye to and their shoulder to, is the way the women were treated before Islam came. And the way the women were treated before the Prophet ﷺ was sent. Because whoever studies the seerah, and whoever knows the history knows that women were looked at objects, were looked at me, puppets, before the sending of the Prophet ﷺ. They had no control. They had no choice. They had no decisions. They were treated like puppets in the hand of the puppetee. But when Allah Azza wa Jal, He sent the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ in truth to take the people out of darkness and into light by His will, are everything once again changed even in respect and regards to the way women were treated. They went from being treated as useless and helpless before Islam 
to being treated uh, in the best of ways, like queens, wallahi, like queens. Help is helpful. And being supported and everything that Islam or everything that a woman could ever desire and everything that a woman could ever ask for. So the change and the shift was wallahi grand and great, subhanAllah. And I'll just quickly finish off, brothers, with just an example of that. They were looked, we said, at objects, having no rights, no freedom. When Islam came, everything changed. And an example of that, an example of that is in the marriages and divorce of the women back then. And I'll just give you an example of a lady whose husband passes away. She enters into the Idda period. Islam comes and it teaches us that she's still a human being. She's still a lady. She's still to be respected. She still has rights. She's still to be honored and the likes. But before Islam came, let us see the way women were treated after the death of their husbands in their Idda periods. Um Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha was told, as Zainab mentioned, she says, I heard Um Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha say, say, a woman came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and said, Ya Rasulullah, my daughter's husband has died and she has a problem in her eye. Can I, can I apply kuhl for her? So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he said, no. Then he said, it is four months and ten days. Uh, the idda of the widow, it is four months and ten days. But then she says, during or during the jahiliyyah, one of you would throw a piece of dung, a yani piece of the number two, the poo. They would throw a piece of dung at the end of the year. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Zainab was asked, what does that mean? So she said, after being asked, what does it mean? What is throwing a piece of dung? Yani what does that have to do with anything after one year? So she says, if a woman's husband died, what would happen before Islam? Look at subhanAllah, the way they were treated. If a woman's husband died, she would enter a small room and she would wear her absolute worst clothes. There's no showers. You're not allowed to shower. You're not allowed to perfume yourself. You're not allowed to even dress with clean clothing and the likes, no. So she says, if a woman's husband died, she would enter a small room and wear her worst clothes. She would not, not put on anything, perfume or anything for one whole year. Then after a year, an animal would be brought. You get her, she gets an animal after one year of no showers, no nothing, subhanAllah. An animal would be brought, either a donkey or a sheep or a bird, and she would end her idda with it. Meaning she would clean herself, not with water and the likes, she would clean herself with this animal, subhanAllah. And the hadith actually mentions that Zainab said that really anything would be used to clean, yani any animal would be used to clean, yani the lady to clean herself, except that it would die. Why would it die? Because one whole year the lady didn't shower. Obviously the stench and the smell and the like, subhanAllah. But that was there, that was their reality. Then she says after the lady would clean herself with the animal, she would come out and she would be given a piece of dung, yani poo, and then she would throw it and then she would go back to whatever she used to do. That's after one whole year. And then after that, don't think she went and she was free and the likes. No, she went back to square one. She would, as a woman, she would be inherited by the family of the deceased. She would be inherited. So if the men who inherited her billah, wanted to marry her, they would marry her. If they wanted her to marry someone they wanted, they liked their friend or something like that, she had no choice. She was going to marry that individual. And if the person did not want to marry her off, she would be left without a husband for Allah how long. 
And one of the ill treatments towards the women back then was when a man wanted to punish the lady, he would divorce her. And then he would take her back when she almost finished her idda, and then he would divorce her again. And then he would take her back when she would almost finish her idda, and then he would keep divorcing her so that she stays in a state of idda and she's not able to marry. Uh, she's not able to marry uh, off or marry anyone else. And lastly, brothers, uh, I found a nice little paragraph يعني, in an article online mentioning and summarizing these kind of things. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she says, and we're going to end with this insha'Allah, and I want you to focus on what she says because it describes once again the way the women were treated in the times of Jahiliyyah. And why are we mentioning all of this once again? To have an understanding, to paint a picture. Uh, a halal picture, inshallah, not a 3D image and the likes. To paint a picture of how life was when the Prophet ﷺ was sent to these individuals and was sent to the Arabian Peninsula. She says, there were four types of marriage during Jahiliyyah. Four types of marriage. One type was like the marriage of people today, a normal marriage. One man would ask another for permission to marry a woman under his guardianship or his daughter and he would give her the dowry, and then he would marry her. And that's the correct way, and that's the way we obviously have it today. And just on a side note, as for those who believe that a lady can get married without a wali, then the Prophet ﷺ obviously clearly rejected this and did not allow this. The second type, she says, was when a man, listen to this subhanAllah, when a man would say to his wife, when she became pure after her menses, meaning when she finished her menstrual cycle, Go and get so-and-so, meaning the man. Go and get this certain man and have intercourse with him. This is a husband telling his wife, go and get so-and-so man who he specifies and have relations with him. Have intercourse with him. Then her husband would stay away from her after this man would have intercourse with his wife. He would stay away from her and not touch her until it would become clear whether she was pregnant or not from that man that she had intercourse with. And if her pregnancy, or when her pregnancy became clear and evident, when it was clear that yes, she was pregnant, her actual husband would have intercourse with her if he wanted to. And why did he do that? Why would they do that, some of them? Uh, it says he only did that so that he might have a child with good characteristics. Yani, so he would go get a man pretty much, if you want to put it like this, who was better than him, who was smarter than him, who looked better than him, more intellectual than him, more on the ball than him, and stuff like this. And he would go and he would get this man to have intercourse with his own, with his own wife. Why? Because the children or the child would end up being for him. Even though it's not his child, yani someone else impregnated his wife, but that someone else has nothing to do with the picture, or in the picture, or in the scenario, after having intercourse with the wife. So then after he goes off, if the lady is pregnant, then the actual husband, the, father, the son or the child, is to be named after that. And another kind of marriage, and this is the third of the fourth, and we're finished inshallah, Another kind of marriage was where there was a group of men. Listen, a'udhu billah. A group of men less than 10 would get together and go towards the woman and the woman would have intercourse with all of them. The woman would have intercourse with all of them. And then after that, she would see if she became pregnant or not. If she became pregnant and gave birth, a few days after giving birth, 
she would send for them. Yani khalas, she'd get the baby now. Then she would go call each of the men, approximately 10 or a bit under. She would go get each of the men. She would call them to come. And then she would say to them as the hadith says, yani all of them would come. No one would refuse. And then when they all came together, she would say to them, you all know what you have done. And now I have given birth. And then she would pick whichever one she wants to. And then that would be the father of the child. <laughs> what kind of mentality is that? Okay, so she would choose from any of the men and she would pick him as the father and he is not allowed to refuse. He's not allowed to say no. The fourth type of marriage, and then we're finished inshallah, is the marriage similar to this. The marriage was where many people, like prostitution subhanallah, many people would go to a woman and she would not refuse anyone. She would have intercourse with each and every one of them. And then after that, after that, and the, the, the hadith actually mentions she would actually put flags at their doors as signs. At their doors as signs. So anyone who wanted to go in could go in and have intercourse with them. If one of them got pregnant, yani the women, and gave birth, all the men, all the men would be called to come together in front of the lady. And what would they do? They would go get individuals who were known back then, very highly skilled in being able to tell just from the facial and the physical characteristics who the baby is for. Who the baby is for. So these skilled individuals would say, okay, the baby, for example, looks like one, two, three. Khalas, you're the father now. A'udhu <laughs> billah. You're the father. And once again, he's not allowed to refuse that. So this, my brothers, as I said, this was the state yani, of the people of Jahiliyyah. This was what the Prophet ﷺ was sent to and those who he, who he had to address and the likes. And when Islam came, as we said, everything changed. When the Prophet ﷺ came, everything changed. And this is why Aisha ended the statement by saying, but when Muhammad ﷺ, this is the end of Aisha's long statement on the four types of uh, 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 intimacies. She says, but when Muhammad ﷺ was sent with the truth, he abolished all the kinds of marriages that were known during the times of Jahiliyyah, except the type of marriage that people know today. And except the marriage that we all know as the KK and the likes with the wali and etc., the dowry and the witnesses and the likes. So inshallah ta'ala, next fortnight, we will actually get in, into inshallah the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, starting with his lineage and his birth. Wallahu a'la wa a'lam wa salli lahumma wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. This program was presented by Al-Bayan Radio, the voice of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah.